How about that cigar? How about that cigar? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Drew Estate Cigar Studios for episode 173 of How About That Cigar Live. Guys, thank you so much for joining us while we're live on Facebook, live on YouTube. And if you're listening after the fact on the audio podcast, thank you so much for making us a part of your regular audio podcast rotation. And if you are watching live on Facebook, take just a minute and share us out. Let everybody know that we have gone live and we have a great show for you tonight. And here in the Drew Estate Cigar Studios, let's remind you about the September 28th Freestyle Live Special Edition broadcast where Drew Estate will unveil an entirely new premium cigar brand. And the company is giving consumers the ability to experience it before the formal launch in the upcoming Freestyle Live event pack. These packs are now available at participating retailers. 10,000 of the packs have been prepared, each with an MSRP of $39.99, and every Freestyle Live Pack includes three unbanded new premium cigars, a three-cigar case, a cutter with cigar rest, and a Freestyle Live Flask. Each pack also includes a QR code, which the purchaser can use to enter a sweepstakes for a chance to win incredible prizes. From a pewter ashtray designed by Subculture Studios, a Gibson Les Paul Dark Limited guitar, and a 2022 Black Dodge Charger. Also, participating retailers can automatically be entered for a chance to win great prizes. To learn the identity of the mystery cigar, tune in on September 28th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, only on Drew Estates Freestyle Live YouTube channel and Drew Estate's Facebook page. Find a list of participating retailers at drewestate.com slash freestyle live 2022. Back again in the Drew Estate Cigar Studios, episode 173. A little bit of football going on uh, on an iPad in the background. Yep, a little uh, bit. We how, got the Vikings going. How's your team doing We're so far? We're not going to talk about it right now. Okay, okay. We're down uh, 14 <laughs> to 7. Uh... It's early. It is early. It's still the first half, and uh, we'll we'll see. Um, uh, my team awoke from their slumber. Yeah, yesterday uh, played very well against the Bears. Um, it was a home game, so that always helps uh, for the Green Bay Packers playing in Lambeau. Uh, but they looked way more uh, alert, awake. Uh, Aaron Aaron Jones absolutely went off yesterday. Did he? I mean, they he went off. He had a fantastic day. Uh, Aaron Rodgers did okay. Uh, he had a decent day, um, and I I think Devonte Adams might be second guessing his uh, decision to after go to what they, the Las Vegas Raiders after what they did yesterday. Yeah. I, so, um, it'll. I I mean, it's early. It's still you know it's it's week two, <laughs> so we'll see how it goes. Um, if you'll notice, we didn't start right off talking about the Twins because, I mean. We just finished a five-game series against Cleveland, who is basically the team that we need to beat if we want to gain back any traction. We won't, We only won four out of those five. No. Um, sorry, we only won. Sorry. Thank you. We'll the reverse it. The other we, way. We won one out of those five. Yes. Uh, against the Guardians. <laughs> and um, just... Uh, At this point, we both hope that the Twins miss the playoffs completely. And they're so mathematically, they're not technically eliminated, but it's pretty much done. Um, because I don't, you know, with there's 15 games left, and with who they have to, you know, still play, I and with all the injuries, I just don't see it happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I prefer them just rest up and, you know, not that we want them to tank because that's not the way it works in baseball, but 
just rest up and you know yep there's so there's, there's always, always next, next year, year. <laughs> that's i don't know that's that's all you can say about it really um but there's uh you know there's a lot of great uh great stuff going on in in sports right now there's some yep. uh i mean even in even in the nfl like if you play fantasy football at all there's always a roller coaster ride putting putting your team together and from one week to the next you never know what's going to happen yeah uh, if you were somebody who picked up trey lance like sorry like i did Ooh. um yeah so yeah he's uh he's he's done for he's the done. season it's sad he's you know, young young kid just got his chance to uh, you know be an NFL starter, and then he gets a season-ending injury. It's it's not easy, but uh, so now Garoppolo's back in there. We'll see how he does. Uh, I think he's going to do pretty well. He did pretty well yesterday. So I think let's let's roll. Yeah, let's roll right into it, yeah. man. We got a great great special guest tonight that we're so excited to have on. Uh, we have a lot of great stuff to cover this evening. So let's get into our main event of the evening. And as always on How About That Cigar Live, special guests are brought to us by our friends at Corona Cigar Company. Corona Cigar Company and CoronaCigar.com, the Internet's largest and easiest to use virtual cigar store. Corona Cigar Company offers the finest handmade cigars, humidors and cigar accessories at the absolute lowest possible price. You'll also find unique and limited cigars made with Florida sun-grown tobacco. As a proud American, president and founder of Corona Cigar Company, Jeff Borshowitz knew it was possible to bring cigar tobacco farming back to Florida. At Corona Cigar Company, you'll find the best selection anywhere in the world of cigars containing this special Florida sun-grown tobacco. If you live in Florida or are just visiting, be sure to visit any of the great Corona Cigar locations in downtown Orlando, Sand Lake, Tampa, Lake Mary, and a new location coming soon to Sarasota. To learn more, visit coronacigar.com and floridasungrown.com. All right, ladies and gentlemen, if you would please put your hands together and welcome to episode 173 of How About That Cigar Live, the legend, Mr. George Brightman. Welcome to the show, brother. How are you? All right. Thank you, man. It's a uh... It's a privilege to be here with you guys. I appreciate that. You know, every time I see that uh, uh, Jeff in the uh, in the Corona cigar uh, uh, video there, when he's when he's torching up his Florida sun grown in the standing in the fields, I always want one of those leaves to catch fire, right? <laughs> you know, like because he's got that giant torch in the cigar and he's right there. It's like, oh come on, you know, let's just have a little flame there. That's good. That would be good to see. I yeah. won't be able to unsee that now every time we play that. <laughs> right. I look at it and go, it's got to happen, you know? Yes. Uh, so, George, before we jump in, uh, if you would let us know where you're broadcasting from tonight and what you're going to be smoking with us. Uh, I'm, in the, uh, I'm in the back room of the new Capital Cigar and Tobacco, which is the, the, the new version of uh, the place where Oh God! Ten years ago or more, I started doing the Draper Dialogues. It's the it's formerly the W. Curtis Draper Shop in Bethesda, uh, and 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 boy, we've we've had a lot of fun in this place. Uh, right now, there's a, there's a bunch of guys out front watching football. So uh, because it's the Monday night doubleheader, I had to uh, stash myself in the back room storage closet. So uh, it, if it looks like I'm uh, coming to you from an Amazon warehouse, it's uh, because that's pretty much my vibe at the moment so 
you'll forgive the uh, I I feel like I you know with the with the overhead light and everything looking at me it's like I'm in a, a bad surveillance setup in a B movie you know uh, <laughs> so but let's get to the good part I, I want to tell you I've I've got a, a a great heater to smoke tonight I'm sorry I'm trying to get the uh, the angle here I'm gonna burn a Winston Churchill late hour Churchill so a Churchill Churchill very nice and uh, these things man they're so beautiful you you really you know. You don't know whether you want to uh, smoke them or sleep with them. They're just gorgeous. <laughs> yeah. Love that cigar. I love that. Well, um, I'm going to get mine fired up right now. Absolutely. So let's All right. get it done. Let's do it. When lighting your cigar, it is important to be patient, pay close attention to detail, and focus on the tobacco. In the same way, Steve Saka brings those same qualities to the ultra-premium cigars of Dumbarton Tobacco and Trust. Patience, close attention, and focus on the tobacco are the qualities that Saka and Dunbarton Tobacco and Trust have become known for. From Sober Mesa to Umbagag, Dunbarton has a blend that will fit your palate, your mood, and any occasion. Visit DunbartonCigars.com to learn more. You know, I love the fact that you guys have the your, your, your voiceover for those. You know, the toast cam that Garrett does there is slowed down, so it's making people be like, Okay, light your cigar slow. Do this right. It's perfect as opposed to the usual, you know, FedEx uh, voiceover, you know, <laughs> you know, the, the rat-a-tat-tat delivery, right? You know, so I love that. Thank you, George. Oh, thank you. And anybody hey, who knows problem. me, if you're if you're ever at an event with me, and and I say, hey, could I borrow your lighter? It's the answer is okay. no. It's okay if you say no because you know that if I borrow your lighter. I'm probably I'm not getting gonna, it back. I, well, I'm probably going to use half the butane that's in the thing <laughs> because I take forever to light a cigar. Thank God. You know, the, the way to the, the way to really slow yourself down in lighting is to use matches. It's just that, you know, matches sort of went by the wayside once people got used to the idea that 90 percent of their smoking had to be outdoors or if you were indoors, you were in a place that had so much air handling that it was like smoking on the deck of a speedboat. Right. Yeah. Absolutely right. So, George, for the uninitiated, for the people who don't know George Brightman, can you give us a little tidbit of where your story began in this industry? I started out as a child. <laughs> That's a good place uh, no, to start. I... I uh, well, I, compared to the other people in the industry, th that's really what, what people thought when I was there. So it was uh, uh, 1973. I went to work part-time for uh, for David Berkebile, in, uh, who was at that time had uh, three Georgetown Tobacco and Pipe stores. And, you know, it was purely an accident. I was really just looking for uh, a little bit of work while I uh, finished my portfolio for a scholarship to art school. And nearly 50 years later here i am every time i try and get out they pull me back in <laughs> but I, I so i i worked at georgetown uh first at the, one of the satellite stores first at montgomery mall then at tyson's corner so that's a maryland and a virginia suburb of the of the district of columbia and then the main store and then all of them collectively and uh that lasted uh more than 10 years and I, I ended up um, leaving Washington, D.C. to move to New York uh, to launch the retail operations for Davidoff of Geneva. Now, at that time, Davidoff White Label didn't exist. We were 
uh, one of the first things that the Swiss tasked me with doing was reinventing the Zeno brand um, in the United States, in particular, the Zeno expression that I had um, exclusively at, at the shop on Madison Avenue in New York City. Uh, so I did that for five, five and a half years. But during that time, my, uh, my immediate neighbor in, in that retail block was a fantastic wine company called Morel and Company. And one of the people who was an executive for Morel was a, a passionate cigar guy. And uh, he used to tell me about, the, you know, customers that they had. Uh, and he goes, we got this one guy. He really loves cigars. And so finally, one day he comes over, he goes, I'm going to introduce this guy to you. He's the only person I know who's as crazy about cigars as you are, but I take no responsibility for what happens. And that person, and that person was Marvin Shankin. Yeah. And uh, Marvin and I became friends and, uh, you know, traded a lot of things. I'd invite him to my events and he'd invite me to his. And, you know, we, we got, we got along uh, uh, famously. We were, we were like fast friends, uh, pretty much the first day we met, but <laughs> Marvin, uh, called me one day, uh, uh you know, a funky, uh, long distance call. And he said, uh, we got to talk. We got to talk. Uh, I'm going to start a cigar magazine. And it was, that was as a result of Marvin's very first visit to Cuba. And he made the mistake of leaving Cuba on a, uh, Cubana aviación plane that was flying to Mexico city and he thought he was going to die. He thought the plane was going to crash because they, you know, they used to fly these old Tupolev, these Russian uh, jets that were, you know, left over from the Korean war and shit like that. It was, it was a joke. So he, he really thought he was going to die. And he said to himself, if I ever get off this plane, I'm going to start a cigar magazine because I always wanted to do it. So he calls me from Mexico from the and he says, I'm going to start a cigar magazine. So I said, okay, Marvin, well, when you get back to New York, come and see me and, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what mistakes not to make. And he goes, what do you mean? And I said, well, you know, you think you're the first guy that tried to do this. I'll, I'll tell you about, you know, the mistakes that other guys that started cigar magazines made and we'll fix them and you'll be fine. He never left me alone after that. <laughs> he, he, he was, he was, he was great. So, you know, Marvin, at, in, in those days, their, their offices were on Park Avenue South and my store was on Madison Avenue uh, between 54th and 55th. And he used to come to see me and we would uh, leave and go to around the corner to the St. Regis Hotel. In those days, they had this little room. They called it the Cognac Room. It was actually the original uh, Gucci boutique in, in all of the United States. But anyway, uh, we, we, would, we would hang out there uh, for like an hour and a half and, you know, talk and smoke and go through all this stuff. And then I would walk around the corner like Marvin would get in his car to, to, to drive back to, uh, to his office and I would walk around the corner from 55th and 5th to my store at 54th and Madison. And when I walked in the door, my assistant would be holding the phone out going, it's Marvin. He needs to talk to you. And I'm like, what? The, just, we were, I like Marvin, you were here. We were for an hour and a half. What, what, you know, and he had more questions. So he wore me down. He wore me down over a period of time. And I eventually uh, resigned from Davidoff and joined um, M. Shankin Communications to launch Cigar Aficionado magazine. And so, and I want to, I want to keep going on that track, but I'm curious before you even, you know, like you said, before you even did that first part-time shift at a retail cigar shop, 
Sure. What was what was the first time you sat down and said, "Okay, I'm gonna light up. I'm gonna buy and light up." Or if it was something somebody gave to you, that first premium cigar that you lit down. So, or or that you lit up. When was that? And do you remember what the cigar was and where you were? Yeah, it was probably uh, 1970, maybe 71. And I was at the uh, the Georgetown Tobacco Store. And I bought a Royal Jamaica Buccaneer. Oh, wow. Uh, oh, my gosh. They, they, you know, they, they, well, Buccaneer, we used to say, yeah, they're $2 a head. Um, we, uh, I like, in those days, Royal Jamaica were great cigars. They were absolutely superb. They were Royal Jamaica cigars, not Macanudo or any of the other uh, then less famous Jamaican brands. Unlike them, Royal Jamaica was all Jamaican tobacco except for the wrapper which was the most beautiful Cameroon wrapper that anybody had at the time. Yeah. Um, so then, like you said, uh, 92, 93, you get started with M. Shankin Communications. Yeah, but you don't forget, while, while I was at Davidoff, you know, I midwifed uh, the Avo brand, right? That was mine for, uh, I, it, it didn't exist until... Otto came to me and we dreamed it up and, and created it and it was exclusive for me. And then I developed and defended him with the Swiss so that they, cause they wanted to kill the project right away. Um, but I defended him and we, we kept it going and then expanded it, you know, to, to wholesale distribution and started the brand. I launched the Davidoff cool water fragrance in the United States, which became within, you know, 24 to 30 months, it became the number one men's fragrance in the U S uh, and I was the guy, the Swiss came to me and said, we, you know, what do you know about Cuba and all this stuff? And, you know, we, they, we went over why Davidoff had left Cuba and uh, they said, uh, we, we want to make a new generation Davidoff white label. We're sure, we're confident that it should be in the Dominican Republic, but we don't know the Dominican Republic. It's up to you to recommend what factory that's going to happen. So that started a process that I had to go and visit all my friends and, talk about, you know, what the possibilities were and, and, and what we wanted to do and everything else, then come back, make my recommendation to the Swiss, defend it, and then go through the, the birthing of the white label of Davidoff and launching that brand and, and, and getting it, uh, uh, you know, up and running in the United yeah. States. Because at that time, you know, there only a very, very small percentage of cigar consumers in the United States really knew what Davidoff meant or what they stood for. So prior to, I've always been curious about this, prior to Cigar Aficionado launching, um, as far as I'm aware, uh, you know, the only thing that was out there, you know, as far as uh, c cigar, uh, you know, cigar publishing, you know, things that you could read about cigars, you know, there were books in libraries and things like that. But aside from maybe the odd article in the New Yorker or GQ or Esquire, what, was there a dedicated tobacco magazine aside from a trade magazine? Any time outside, outside of trade, no. Other people had tried. Uh, okay. You remember Al Goldstein, the guy that was the publisher of Screw Magazine? Yeah. The Porn King? Yeah. Al started a, a cigar newsletter. I actually had a lot of the original art. He came to see me, uh, again, at Georgetown. He came to see me to ask questions about that. Uh, so, and, you know, he, he ran it for, uh, probably it was a quarterly, you know, on sort of a colored heavy paper stock. There was no, 
there was no photography. It was illustrations. He had some interesting ideas, but of course it was Al Goldstein. So he was destined <laughs> to, to fuck it up. Um, and it, it couldn't get, uh, there was no, there was no hope of getting a uh, respectable distribution for that because he was Al Goldstein, the publisher of screw magazine. And people were like, uh, no, you know, uh, and there was another, uh, in the 1970s, there was a, a slick, a beautiful, um, cigar magazine. And don't forget in the 1970s, there was, you know, the cigar business was, was the redheaded stepchild of the tobacco industry. There was no, there wasn't real margin in, uh, in selling cigars. And, you know, you didn't have the diversity of brands, uh, but, but people understood what the, you know, what the lifestyle was. So it was interesting, you know, they had coverage of this. There was a famous, um, there's a famous restaurant in New York and the, uh, maitre d', the after, after you had, you know, surrendered a fortune, what at that time was a fortune for your dinner, the guy would come over and go cigars and they'd wheel over this chest and he would take a little cognac and pour it on his palms and then roll the cigar in it and pass it over a candle. So the whole cigar wow. lit up, you know, and, and then he would, then he would roll the cigar in his hands over the tip of the candle flame to light it and make this big presentation to you, you know, all of which meant that they could charge you $15 for a cigar that you know, cost <laughs> $1.75 or whatever. Wow. But anyway, that magazine actually had a little bit of advertising, uh, not, not specifically, there were, there were probably one or two cigar ads in it, but nothing, um, uh, nothing professional. The whole thing was like, a, yeah, it, yeah it's probably, well, I want to say it was 36 pages and they only made like two or three issues and then it folded. So again, those were things that, um, uh, you know, I had in my possession and I had been familiar with their life and death cycle. So yeah. I wanted to talk to Marvin about how not to make those mistakes. So you know, Marvin, when, when uh, uh, he was bringing me on board and we were in the office uh, at, at M. Schenken, he goes, oh, uh, uh, I want you to meet somebody. And he goes, Janice, uh, bring me the clippings. And and, uh, and and Janice McManus, who was Marvin's personal assistant, genius, a fantastic woman. The company wouldn't have run without her. Uh, she comes in with this big stack of Xerox clippings in New York Times and Perry Match and all these places, you know. And I'm looking at me, he goes, and these were all written by Gordon Mott. You know, he works for me. And he's bringing in Gordon, who became the managing editor. At the time, Gordon was editing a, a, a trade spirits industry trade publication for Marvin. But Gordon was a, a, a serious cigar guy, um, not with the same focus that I had, obviously. But anyway, he, he's sitting there with these, he's putting these clippings in front of me like there's something. And I went, yeah, uh -huh, Marvin. And I reached down to my briefcase and I opened it up and I pulled out the originals of all those. He was showing me Xerox copies of these things. So I said, here's the issue of Perry Match. Here's the <laughs> This is the Washington Post. Here's the, you know, this is the Wall Street Journal. I gave him all of them, and he's looking at me like, what, you know? <laughs> and uh, and he, so it, it, you know, that that led to a conversation where he said to me, "You gotta, you know, you have to introduce me to somebody like you to help me get this magazine started." And I went, Marvin, how long have you known me? And he sort of, you know, I said, "Don't you know there isn't anybody like me? There isn't anybody that lives, breathes, and sleeps cigars the way I do." And he goes, "Okay, well then, what's it going to take?" And that's how I yeah. started. And that, and you're right there at that time, there really weren't, I mean, there's today it's, it, it's with the internet and social media and things like that. There's, there's a lot of guys out there, us included who, you know, give ourselves the, you know, the title cigar nerd, you know, that we'd love to consume as much as we can and learn as much as we can. And there are, there are 
a fair number of us out there. Yep. But back in, you know, the, you know, the seventies to the early nineties that, that you were a rare breed. Well, there was, you know, there was no cigar media. Cigar aficionado created cigar media. You know, a bunch of yeah. things happened mm-hmm. immediately after us. You know, Aaron Sigmund created Smoke Magazine, and then he had successive iterations, different things that he did, which were all interesting sort of counterpoints to Cigar Aficionado. All of the trade magazines reinvented themselves in, in our image. There were a lot of things that happened uh, as a result, but, but none of that existed when we launched, which was, you know, it was fantastic. That's why I said we were, you know, we created this way of thinking about cigars uh, as, a, as a part, as a business, not just a passion. The passion part was yeah. why you attracted all these extraordinary people. You know, I mean, the, 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 the cigar industry is littered with these creative geniuses and extremely passionate people. Yeah. Uh, and they've given, you know, all of us tremendous pleasure with the things that they have created or that they have uh, built as institutions to introduce us to the pleasures of a great cigar. You know, I mean, that was my my role. I, I spent, you know, 20 plus years on a soapbox preaching the benefits of a great cigar, what it could do for you in your life. So, George, I got to ask, what was that moment that, you know, we, we talked about your first cigar, but... <laughs> What was that moment where you're like, this is special, this is amazing, I'm diving in to cigars? Well, I, so it, that's a little complicated in a way. I was always really interested taking, you know, when I got into the tobacco business, you had to know about pipes, which meant you had to know about, you know, briar and how you got it and how you aged it and worked it and carved it and every other aspect. You had to know about pipe tobaccos. You had to know about accessories. I had to be able to take apart and service most of the lighters that we sold. You know, I mean, there was a, there was a lot to it. And the cigar business, because there weren't margins in the cigar industry, you, you know, it didn't get as much attention, but I was always passionate about it. And David was great because he, you know, indulged me in that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I take my vacations from Georgetown tobacco get in my car, drive down to Little Havana and spend uh, a week going through all the chinchillas. That's how I met Ernesto Carrillo and his dad first. Oh, wow. In the 1970s, in the mid-1970s. Um, so real, real yeah. quick. But, um, but I, I, I'll, I'll give you, just to get to Garrett's point right here. Yeah. One of the things that, in the, the reason why I was thinking about how everything that you had to do as a tobacconist in that era, the Ne Plus Ultra of being uh, a retailer at that point was to be a part of what Dunhill called the principal pipe dealer network. And once a year during the trade show, they had this magnificent black tie dinner and you would go into a very, very, very exclusive place, in, you know, usually like a corporate boardroom dining setting, something like that, not just any restaurant. And there would be hundreds, if not thousands of pipes laid out, but as part of that dinner, at the end, they came around and everybody was presented with uh, a Monte Cristo, which was uh, it, you were presented with the Monte Cruz, because that's what it was back in those days, a Canary Island cigar. But they were they were beautiful. They were unlike the, the Monte Cristo that a typical retail Monte Cruz that a typical retailer could buy and put on. The, they, were, they were just these good because most Monte Cruz were soft box press the way you got them and sold them to customers. 
These were all cabinet selection, no cello round, absolutely beautiful cigars. I mean, they were they were gorgeous. And they would come around, you know, a butler essentially would come around and put one in front of you and you'd go through the lighting and smoking. And I smoked one of those. So maybe 1975, 1975. And okay. it was it was <laughs> it was a paradigm shift. Yeah. Sorry. So go ahead. You were going to ask a question, man. I well, there, there's a story that I know a lot of us um, who are cigar nerds have heard many times, and it's that famous story about uh, Carlos Fuente saying, I'm going to buy an advertisement and thinking that he was only buying an advertisement for one man. He's like, he's only ever going to put out one issue. So sure. I'll, I'll, I'll throw the guy a bone and I'll buy, I'll buy a full page ad and that'll be it. And, but, and that, you know, seeing that progress over the years and you were, you were there for 11 years. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. So in the time that you were there, especially those early years, can you, can you think of the moment that you knew that sort of touchstone event, whether it was an advertiser or somebody agreeing to be on the cover or something like that, that where that it was that moment that you knew this, this was, this was going to be a big deal. This was going to be the thing that changed the premium cigar industry forever. Well, I'll tell you clear. I knew from the start that it was going to be a success, how big and how much of a, of a, of a moment, of a zeitgeist moment it was going to become, no one could have predicted. Uh, but I will tell you this. We had a launch party. This was a very complicated thing, but we had a launch party, again, in the St. Regis, in the, in the ballroom for the St. Regis. And we invited um, a lot of people. Uh, uh, so, you know, businessmen, potential not just cigar guys. And there were, you know, we had, the, the, the place was set up. There were cigars and beautiful humidors, all this stuff. And it was a magnificent meal. David Tang came from Hong Kong. Uh, Simon Chase came from, uh, from London. Edward Sahakian came. A lot of people. But there were titans of business. But I will tell you this, again, and that was another black tie function. We, so it, it started with a reception. And then we went in to sit down at dinner. During dinner, there was only one woman there, and it was the Baroness Philippine de Rothschild, who had been, you know, she was she was part of the launch of, of the original Zeno cigar in the 80s. We knew each other pretty well, but obviously Marvin knew her better. But there we we did have some women guests during the cocktail reception. And one of them was a woman who was uh, the essentially she was the buyer for a conglomerate of luxury watch brands, Swiss, you know, super yeah. expensive timepieces. And she's like, what do I, you know, cigar dinner? And I don't want to, and I said, listen, just come to the cocktail reception. Come to the cocktail reception, take a look around at the people that are there and, and watch what happens. You know, we're serving champagne and the wines. Every, everything was spectacular. It was, it was, First rate as, as only Marvin could assemble, you know, bullying all these people into uh, contributing extraordinary uh, wines. And, and of course, all the cigar guys were like, we love it. This is the, the greatest mm -hmm. exposure ever. You know, there weren't uh, were, there, there weren't 9000 cigar events a year at that time. So this was something really special. Anyway, she came. She was there for 45 minutes and she she said, hey, 
you got me. I looked at the watches. I looked at the shoes. I looked at the suits. These guys are a Venn diagram, 98% overlay for my customer base. I'm in. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. That's and automotive guys, uh, yeah. uh, you know, hotels, everybody understood almost immediately that, 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 you know, the real fine cigar consumer was uh, hedonist, uh, self-indulgent, usually, uh, you know, look very handsome when they were sitting on top of their wallet. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it was, it, we just, we, it caught fire. Yeah. I mean, in the, in the era when we launched and, and the, you know, the, the 90s cigar boom, you couldn't turn around without bumping into somebody else who wanted to get on the cigar bandwagon. Yeah. Well, and it was the timing also, and this this may have may have played directly into Marvin's you know uh, business minded thinking about it. Was you look back before that, you know, at the big crash in '87, and then the slow build back to affluence. It it, it uh, the timing really was was very good because because the the era of affluence really did hit in that sort of 1992. Yeah. Time frame where where people were back, you know, the the economy was booming and things were going really well. And everybody wanted symbols. Everybody yeah. wanted symbols. You know, people can't necessarily see uh, your home. And unless they're the parking attendant, they, they don't know what kind of car you drive. Right. So, yeah. uh, you know, your watch, the kind of fountain pen you had in your pocket and the cigar that you smoked spoke volumes. But don't forget, I'll tell you this, you know, we Davidoff opened their store uh, shortly after that Black Monday of 87. And uh, they were in a panic. You know, we had there were much grander plans for what Davidoff was going to do in the United States. It yeah. took me uh, uh, it, it took me making a success of what was happening there for them to that finally agree, OK, we're going to take the next step and open another location and expand and things like that. They, they were not they weren't convinced that uh, that the, everybody in the States wasn't going to go run and hide. But remember, the, the beauty of a cigar is it's this affordable. It's it's the greatest thing in the world because it's an affordable luxury. It's available to so many people and it's your best friend on a bad day. <laughs> and it's the thing you want on a good day. Yeah, that's that's a great way to put it. It's it's your best friend on a bad day, and yeah, I love oh, that. I do too. Yeah, nothing yeah. nothing softens the blow of watching a bad twins loss like a uh, like a great cigar. <laughs> Why or, do you think we love cigars so much? Exactly, <laughs> you've got plenty of occasions. You got plenty of occasions. Believe me, we're, we're sympathetic. Like I told you before, we were in the green room. Uh, the, the 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 twin cities in Washington D.C. should be sister cities. Yes. We have created so much and mostly misery. Uh, you know, uh, uh, I mean, if you think about it, we we sent you we sent you, you know, the the the, the senators, which are, you know, they, they're the reason why the, the, the Broadway show Damn Yankees exists. Right. Because it's yep. uh, about what perennial losers they were. Uh, yep. We sent you, we, you know, you're watching tonight. We sent you Kirk Cousins. Right. So. Mm -hmm. uh, uh but in return, you know, you guys are generous. You, you're still, you know, great spirit. We got, uh, we got Shelly. We got Shelly Jacobs. We got Shelly's back room, you know, which still exists today. Yeah. You guys, it, it's, it's, it's way before your time, but uh, Shelly's wood roast, you know, the birth right oh. there in Wazada. No, I, I, my, my wife and I, that was, 
that was one of our first dates was was uh eating at Shelly's Wood Roast right off 394 yeah. over there. And how did Shelly was a great guy. He was an awesome human being. The the dessert? The dessert? I don't isn't that the one where you ordered dessert? No, 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 that was a different oh, that was okay. a, no, that was that was a maybe very first date. I don't remember, but it was a long time. <laughs> ago. Well, getting back to George. So um our friend <laughs> yeah, Luciano, Go ahead, sorry. Uh, no, it's all right. Our, our friend Luciano um, made a comment about how he respects your palate. And from a lot of wonderful stories, um, you have this incredible palate. When did you realize that you were able to, because a cigar palate is a relatively new term for, you know, this era um, back in the nineties, I, I can only imagine that that wasn't, um, as pre- prevalent of a, of a skill set. So people laugh at you if you talk funny about cigars, yeah. <laughs> seriously, you know, you'd be sitting there describing, they go, what are you talking about? You know, and, and which by the way, you know, that exists everywhere. There are people who resent the pretentious language that's involved in wine. There are sure. people who are suspicious if you try and describe what you taste in whiskey. Speaking of yeah. which, the reason my monitor fell over is because I'm reaching, I'm, I'm bringing out my, uh, my, my Stanley kit uh, travel because I'm, I'm here in the back room. I knew that I wasn't going to have uh, accessories, so I, uh, I brought my whiskey uh, in, my, in my little kit. And I'm pretty sure, even though th- this is Old Elk, it's from a Colorado, but I'm pretty sure that this is a uh, whiskey that's made with uh, Minnesota rye. Ooh, very nice. Love it. So getting uh, back to the palate. So, yeah. so back, to, back to a cigar palate, I'll tell you this. When I was really, really young, one of the first trade shows that I went, you know, in the, in the, in the 70s and, and into the 80s, the trade show was always in one place. It was in New York City, and you went to the Hotel Pennsylvania uh, uh, right opposite uh, Madison Square Garden, and and there there were just floors, and the exhibitors took rooms, and the you know the big ones and the fancy ones had uh, um, a hospitality room besides the where they had their product exhibited, and you went down the hall, you know, you went from room to room to room, and some people went down one side and back the other, and some people crisscrossed, and then when you got to the end of the hall, you took the stairs to the next floor and started the same thing. One of the places that I discovered in my first trade show was a small, very unpretentious room um, called Antillian, which was the business that uh, Manuel Casada had with Juan Sosa. And they were, uh, you know, they, they, had, they had a lot of interesting stuff, but in there was a, a tremendous, there were two tremendous tobacco brokers that I met there over those years in the seventies. One was, um, Jerry Edelman's dad and, and his, his uncle, Alfred Edelman, who was a legendary tobacco dealer, broker. Uh, and the other was Heller Marifel of the Marifel clan of Cameroon fame. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'm just a brat, you know, a snot-nosed kid coming in there and first thing, you know, what do you got? And let me see what's going on. And they're like, who is this kid? And, and Juan Sosa gave me a, uh, an 8 by 50 Maduro. And he said, smoke this and uh, come back and tell me what you think. And I'm like, okay. I'm sure he thought that he was giving me a cigar that would knock me out and that would be the end of it. He'd never yeah. seen me. <laughs> I came back about 45 minutes later and I said, okay, 
you know, it's got this and this. And I started this. I was talking to him about the flavor. And I said, there's something in here. I said, is there Mexican tobacco in this? And he looks at me like, what? And I said, yeah, it's got the, you know. And so we, he's like, oh, shit. And they're looking like, what's going on? So I said, what else you got? And he goes, he gives me another cigar. And he goes, what do you think of this? And after that, every day I would come in in the morning. They would give me a cigar. I would have to come back and report about what it was and what I tasted and what I thought. Then they'd give me another one. And we had to do the same thing. And at the end of the week, they would say, okay, you know, so grade these, put them together. And what are you going to buy? So in wow. the in the years leading up to that, though, what did you do to learn that those smells and tastes what did you do to tune your palate in the years prior to that all of the managers of georgetown tobacco used to get together on a regular basis and we would do blindfold tasting so you you could uh, one of the things that that uh, the managers allowed was that you know you could you would take the cigar out of cellophane if it was in cellophane. You would remove the band and you could cut the cigar and you could even alter the length of the cigar. Like you could cut the foot a little bit, you know, to try and fool somebody about. Because in those days, by the time I got to the point where I was running Georgetown, I knew I knew I could physically tell the properties, the smells, the qualities of, of, of every cigar in my humidor. I used to tell my staff. But, you know, blindfold me, check me anytime. Bring me a cigar. Every Saturday, I would say there's an open contest for the whole staff. I said, bring me a cigar out of the humidor and give it to me. And if I can't tell you what it is, I buy lunch for everybody. Wow. And most wow. of the time, most of the time, I didn't even have to light it. I could figure out what it was by holding it in my hands and cutting it and tasting the cold tobacco. But we would have the, the managers would regularly, and this was off campus, you know, outside the stores, because we would also do it with whiskey. That was the, the dawn of single malt scotch in, uh, in, in the U.S. And so we were always uh, buying and, and tasting uh, malt whiskeys, too. But yeah. the idea was you would every every all the guys would come managers and sometimes assistant managers. And we would bring, you know, like six or seven cigars ready for people to taste and put them out. And people had to smoke them and evaluate them and guess what they were. So did you find that even early on? You just had, uh, you just had a good sense of both aroma and taste that that you you could just really sort of narrow in on uh, country of origin of a particular leaf or or that kind of thing. You know, I'm I'm really embarrassed to say this because it sounds like I'm you know breaking my arm, patting myself on the back. But but pretty early on, don't forget, what right now what we're discussing is the 1970s. In the 1970s. You basically had three or four things. You had Mexican cigars. You had Jamaican cigars, which had very particular qualities. Mexican cigars were all Mexican tobacco because that was by law. You couldn't export anything from Mexico that wasn't 100% Mexican tobacco. Okay. There was In those days, the big things were it was Honduras, the Canary Islands, Jamaica, and Mexico. And then lower down came Brazil and the Philippines. Okay. I could tell, uh, you know, I could tell, and there were really only three factories of note in Honduras. So I could figure out from basically from looking at a cigar and how it was made, I could say, this is a Villazan cigar. Uh, this is a cigar from uh, from South Fontana's group, you know, Caribbean tobacco, the, what became Baccarat and all the and eventually uh, Camacho. Uh, so I knew there's. Um, I could tell uh, by the cigar making techniques, which factory in Jamaica had made a Jamaican cigar. 
because they had very specific, you know, they occupied a particular range in terms of flavor. And the Canary Islands uh, were essentially, there, was, there were really two factories that were important. One of them was the leader by far. That's who made Monte Cruz and Don Diego and then, you know, Flamenco and uh, a couple of other things going forward, like Henry Clay, for instance. Uh, but those cigars all had essentially the same components except for the wrapper. So, you know, the difference between a Don Diego and a Monte Cruz was that a Monte Cruz had a super expensive Cameroon wrapper and a Don Diego had a Connecticut shade. And so I, I could look at them and, and, and tell, and because I was interested, I was always at the trade shows going, what about this? And what about, like, I bugged the guys from Royal Jamaica so much that the, the Jamaican guy that they used to bring every year said, all right, sit down. You're going to learn how to do this yourself. And he taught me to roll cigars because he's like, I'm sick of answering your fucking questions. You're going to figure out, you're going to see, you're going to handle the material and you're going to see what it's like to try and stretch a wrapper. You're going to see what it's like when you're making the bunch and when you make it wrong, you can't draw on it. All, all the, he was fantastic. The guy was great. He had hands bigger than my head. He was huh. unbelievable. He could roll these double Corona cabinet selections. M magnificent cigars. They were, they were otherworldly. But those guys spending time with those guys. So I would go in and say to Juan, Hey, uh, you, you changed this. There's no Mexican tobacco in it. Now, what is this new tobacco? And he go, Oh, that's from the Dominican Republic. And that was news. Cause you know, in the, it, listen, in the time when I started in the business, if you had said to an American, find me the Dominican Republic on a map, unless he was a Marine that had landed there to invade, there were two chances were one in a million that a person could identify it. Yeah. So we got a, a cool viewer question. I want to pop up on screen. Uh, so Steve says, mom was uh, the authority in cigars in the early 70s, was, and, and his name was Richard Carlton Hacker. Um, did you know him? Very well. Okay. Uh, and and Richard, Richard was a pipe guy. He made, his, he made his bones writing a thing called the pipe book, and then Playboy decided to hire him as the, uh, you know, as the cigar guy. Um, I don't want to say that he was a fraud, uh, but, but he was a, uh, you know, he was a great pipe guy. He really knew, you know, he, he knew his minutia about pipes and he was into certain kinds of tobacco. He was this, it, like Richard was never in, um, uh, tobacco processing plants the way I was. I was, I was going to places where they were growing it, where they were harvesting it, where they were fermenting it, where they were blending it. I, I mean, I was, I, I, I I was in the industry too. He was just a journalist. Uh, uh, but you know, I would, I'd go anywhere I could, you know, yeah. to learn tobacco manufacturing processes. And those guys, you know, they, they, they were like, well, you know, this has the aroma of dried currents. And, uh, I'm like, really? <laughs> well, you know, when the fuck did you have a dried current? You know, it's like, but, but so, you know, it, it, Hacker was a uh, hacker made a name for himself, but but he was never um, there's put it this way. There's nobody in the cigar business that said, oh, you know, Rick Hacker, he can make your brand. OK. Um, and I'm curious. But that's, a good, that's a good question, though, because that oh, was, yeah. he was very prevalent in that. It was not really the 70s. It was the 80s. OK. And I do have I, I do have a copy of that book somewhere buried in one of my bookshelves downstairs. I don't, I'd have to yeah. dig to find it, but I do have a copy of that book. Um, but for, so you hear a lot of times on uh, Facebook conversations 
or web forums where people, you know, have discussions back and forth about trying different cigars. Yeah. You know, there, there's, there's a camp of people who, um, you know, they, they taste certain cigars or they'll have cert, uh, a certain type of whiskey, like I'm drinking right now and you're drinking right now or wine and things like that. And, you know, we, sometimes we'll get certain aroma notes that remind us of X, Y, and Z, or we'll get certain flavor notes that remind us of X, Y, and Z. And there is a camp of cigar consumers out there that say that's all bullshit. And I don't disregard what they, if they believe it's bullshit, then, then they're, they're welcome to believe that if they want to. So for consumers, you know, the, the casual cigar consumer and then the cigar nerds, what's, how can it benefit us as cigar consumers to just pay a little more attention to what we're tasting and smelling when we, as we learn our way through the hobby and the brands? Well, let, let's two things. One, if I tell you, Oh, that's not the right way to do this and don't cut that. And, and, and uh, you know, use this and blah, blah, and I'm prescribing etiquette and telling you, you know, you, know, you need to do this and you need to do that. And your grandfather taught you different. Who's the asshole in that scenario? <laughs> so, so that you know, it, it's cigar. But to me, one of the things that makes cigars such a joyous hobby, if you will, passion for me, is the sharing, the social aspect. Yes. And if you want to communicate with your friends about something that you've discovered, like there's nothing better than saying, oh, wow, man, I found this cigar. It's absolutely incredible. I've never seen it before. It smokes like a dream. It has this, you know, and, 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 and they're sitting there and they're, and they're saying it, it's not mild, but it's not too strong. And they're stumbling to, to sort of. So the other person is like, OK, I don't really, you know, I don't know. What are you saying? Is it is it is it the best cigar you ever had or is it just good because it was five dollars or or what? So you in order to successfully communicate, you have to have a little bit of commonality. You have to establish some vocabulary. Yeah. We, nomenclature. Yeah. When we started this with Cigar Aficionado, there was a lot of pushback. There was a lot of pushback from people in the industry. I'll, I'll give you one example. Carlito Puente was was absolutely opposed to uh, what he called the flowery language that that you know was employed in in ratings and descriptions of cigars that we would publish. And he's like, I, I don't get that, you know. And there were a lot of old school tobacco guys that said it tastes like tobacco. It's either good or bad. It's strong. Or it's mild. You know, it smells good or it stinks. You know. And they had all, you know, it's like, yeah, but that's bullshit because that's not the way they're describing when they're selling leaf. You know, when 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 guys are saying, uh, I have this incredible tobacco, and you need, they're going to talk to you about the properties that it will add to a blend. So, you know, publicly they might have been poo-pooing some aspect about that, but privately they had their own lingo for for how they would reference raw material. Yeah. But Carlito was like, I don't get that, you know. And then one day he was smoking a cigar and he did a retro hail, you know, and he went black cherry and he goes i tasted black cherry in that cigar and all of a sudden the whole world opened up for him and he goes yeah i understand associative descriptions of tobacco now and he became a, a you know a great ambassador and a proponent not that he uses um, you know like ooh, he doesn't he, he's not still not one for highfalutin uh um, right 
references, but but he can absolutely narrow down and give you beautiful descriptions of the qualities that particular tobacco has. Yeah. Well, and I remember distinctly something similar for me the first time that I was smoking a cigar and it wasn't even, this was a, this was a cheap cigar and this was probably 10 years ago. And I like the idea of cheap. That means five or $6 to you, right? No, it was, it was, uh, it was a $3 cigar 10 years ago. Inexpensive. And I was, I was smoking this cigar and I I wasn't, I never really fell into either camp as far as like, Oh, tasting notes or bullshit or any, I just, I, I just smoked them to enjoy them. But I remember smoking this cigar and it, it had a um, it was an inexpensive budget cigar that had a, a Connecticut shade wrapper. And I could, you know, uh, looking back, I'm, I'm certain there was a lot of Dominican filler in it because it was extremely right. mild cigar. And I remember getting this super distinct flavor like this is peaches, plain and simple. It's peaches. And I, I was like, I'm, I've got to be losing my marbles. So I took a break. I drank some water. I went back. I took another puff. I was like fucking peaches there. I don't. Uh, and from then on, it was kind of the same thing where all, all of a sudden I started and I just started paying attention. And I know that sub- tasting notes for for some people are very subjective where one person will smoke a cigar and they'll say, I get these notes with that, that sort of remind me of, you know, walking into a saddle shop. It's kind of leathery smell, or I'll get these notes that are kind of like, you know, somebody just opened up a, a can of cocoa, you know, and things like that. And I just try to pay attention to them as often as I can. And we put those notes into our review simply so that we can have, like you said, George, a common nomenclature across the board to help you identify what's what, and what Which you like. even if it's a, but, but before I before I go further on that, let me ask you a question. When you got the when you were smoking that cigar and you got the peaches taste, were you retrohaling at that time? Did you did you get it then or were you just um so you know, that's, away? that was that was the the genesis of my retrohaling days. And I am a I am a retrohale for life guy now, and I have been ever since. Where if you now, want to really taste the tobacco. I I, I put just about depending on how strong the cigar and is how and, and how much spice it has you know there are some cigars that are extremely spicy that i don't really want to feel that burning sensation in my nostrils all day so i'll retrohale maybe every third or fourth puff instead of every single puff but uh, like this davidoff right now this is a great example and we've talked about this on the show before this this cigar is it it's there's a lot of complexity to it but it's so mild that I could, if I wanted to, inhale this cigar. I'm not going to, but the retrohale is like, it's like butter. There's no, there's no bite whatsoever when the, yeah. when you push the smoke out of the nose. And that, it's like that, velvet. That I used really to say it's, it's got way. that that talc quality. If it's got that powdery oh, yeah. delicacy, you know that that's just sort of dancing across there, and you can barely tell. Uh, then you know that you're in the in the hands of uh, a beautifully beautifully aged tobacco, and that the blend is balanced, as opposed to what is more popular these days, which is feeling the rake going through your sinuses, going right. hi, we're smoking now. Yeah, well, and Garrett actually, this is one thing I picked up from Garrett that I didn't do. I was always one. I'd take in the puff, and I'd let out. And within a very, very brief second, I would let out 70% of the puff and then I'd let the remaining 
drift out of my nose. Yeah. But Garrett's the one who actually encouraged me to hold the smoke in my mouth for a, a few seconds, count to five before I let it out. Uh, and it really did make a big difference in the way that I experienced. What you registered. What the, because then you're, you're, in, you're encompassing your entire palate when you do that. Yeah. And by the way, that's also the quickest way to find out whether or not the, the, all of the tobacco that's in the cigar you're smoking is properly fermented. Yeah. Because if it isn't, if you have poorly fermented tobacco in there, there's going to be a reaction and you're going to get the green and the sour and the, you know, the, the new mown hay and, and start to get that, you know, little twitch at the back of your throat and the, uh, and the ammonia starts to register and tighten your pipes. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Uh, a cool story that, that I'll share is um, my first cigar um, ha a cigar shop opened up and the manager came over and asked if he would trade, you know, sub sandwiches for cigars. Okay. <laughs> I got my very first cigar. It was a uh, Hemingway classic. I mean, how do you go wrong, right? For your very <laughs> like learning to drive on a Rolls Royce. Oh, right, exactly. <laughs> uh, fell in love with it that night. Smoked it. Came back to the shop the next day, and I I asked the tobacconist. I said, "Okay, so what do I need to really get started in this?" And I was a 19 year old kid, and I didn't think I had any business in there, but they treated me like family, and they said, "Well, let's you know, let's ask uh, this guy here." and he said, you know, it's interesting. There are times where I smoke a cigar and I'm immediately brought back to my grandma's basement. Mm. And he said, uh, so often the time, the flavors and things that we get, not only from cigars, but other things we taste, transport us back because it's attached to a memory. And uh, he said, so I take a notebook out and I, and I write everything down. And that was Rocky Patel, yeah. uh, 1997. And um, I've taken that with me ever since um, that the things that we get, even though we, you know, of course it doesn't taste like your grandma's basement, but <laughs> it, it will transport us back to places because um, they're attached to memories. Yeah. I, I get, I, I have flavors um, that, that, that come to me and they transport me immediately to the places where I first experienced them. Um, and in fact, I'll tell you this, Luciano, uh, when I, when I was, uh, a, very generously, uh, thanks to John Huber and Mike Condor and, and Luciano, when I first smoked Mildias, the very first time that I smoked one, I said, my God, man, I was not even a third of the way through and it was giving me flavor notes and experience. And I went, I swear to God. I'm in a Shinchao on Calle Ocho in Little Havana in 1975. I yeah. said that the smell, the flavor, everything that was happening to me then was like, it was a time machine. It was instantaneous. And I, by the way, I will tell you one thing. I think is actually slightly more powerful, but it's still wrapped up in what we're talking about. Yeah. Aroma. Aroma unlocks. It, it's a, it, you, I think our sense of smell is hardwired to, the, the 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 disc in our brain which is yeah. the, the you know the storage of, of of memories that are sometimes even beyond your ability just to recall but they come back at the 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 the, the, the aroma you know point you know it's uh, uh you know like the 
the guy banging your knee. It's a, it's a reflex. It's not a, you, you don't have any control over it. It's just like, yep. bang, here we are. And I, you know, to me, it's like, I always say, if you open a box of cigars and it smells like perfume, uh, you know, find somebody you hate and give it to them as a present, you know, but if it smells like the business end of a barnyard, you know, in other words, if it smells like hay and horse shit, when you open it up, you go, Oh, these are going to be terrible cigars. None of you guys are going to want them. I'll, I'll take care of these. These are bad. You don't, you don't want these smokes. Yep. That's exactly right. When I, when I first worked for for David at Georgetown, my, my manager at at Montgomery mall, uh, the, the original guy, uh, uh, terrific guy, really great. He was a carpenter, really talented in a lot of ways, but he had this super fantastic mustache, you know, mustache wax and curled and everything. And, and, and it was his pride and joy. The mustache was like, you know, it was, it was part of his persona, right? We used to get in, in those days, one of the, one of the greatest cigars that, that, that I loved at that time was a punch Rothschild. And we used mm-hmm. to get them, uh, uh, you know, in, in cases of, uh, uh, they were in 50 count boxes, still are, but they were, by the way, they were 40 cents when I started working in the business. And when they, when they, when they announced that the price was going to go to 45 cents, all these customers were like 45 cents. Fuck that. I'll find something else to smoke. I want to buy a Bonses. I'm not paying 45 cents for that cigar. You know, a month later, of course they're back, but we yeah. would get them. We would get cases of them. There'd be a thousand cigars. And in other words, uh, 20 boxes of 50. And I would go through all of them and open them up and I would sort them out. I would grade them. Okay. Cause I had customers. I want the darkest ones. You know, I want the oily ones that are reddish. I want the lightest ones cause they're the mildest, you know, all the, you know, everybody had their own take on it, but I would sort them all out. So we were there one night and uh, me and Larry, and uh, we used to go, there was a Greek restaurant upstairs in the mall, of course, because in those days, all cigar stores were in malls, uh, at least in, in, you know, outside of New York city. Um, and we would go upstairs after we closed the store. We'd go upstairs to the Greek restaurant and play backgammon, you know, with, uh, uh, playing against the waiters and stuff like that, drink beers and smoke cigars. And I said, Larry, I got the best box of Punch Rothschilds that we've had in a year. We're going to take a couple of these cigars up there and smoke them. So we start and we're up there and, you know, it's getting late and we're, we're playing. And uh, he goes, hey, uh, I got to go, you know, uh, and I went, dude, I'm opening the store in the morning. What are you worried about? He goes, no, I got to go. <laughs> so he left, right? Next morning I come in, open up the shop. About noon, Larry comes in. And you know how when you lose your mustache that you've had for 8 million years, your upper lip is like a neon light going, look at me, look at me, look at me. You know, it's like the, the, the most ridiculous thing you've ever seen. Larry comes in. I'm looking at him going, dude, what the hell happened? What, what's going on, you know? And he goes, well, you know, you remember last night we were hanging out with we were like, oh, excuse me, what did you say? And he goes, yeah, you know, afterwards we, we left, you know, we left the restaurant and, and then I like take the marbles out of your mouth and tell me what the hell happened. He goes, I went back to the truck and I loved the cigar so much. I was leaning over to relight it and I burned off half my muscle. <laughs> oh, shit. That's fantastic. That, the thing is. We love those flavors so much. He's like, give me another one, right? You know, another. he wanted another cigar from that box. Forget the mustache. Talking about aroma, uh, we talked about this in the green room. One of my favorite stories that I've heard you tell uh, a few times is uh, sitting with Carlito Fuente and him puffing on this, uh, this project of his. Please indulge us in this wonderful story. Well, so first of all, 
it was that cigar aficionado days, sort of early days. And we were in the Dominican Republic. We'd been visiting all the factories and Carlito was not there. Carlito had been in Tampa on company business. And so we were all leaving. We were, we were finished uh, at the end of a week in the DR and I, we were in Jack Tar Village. I forget the name of the of the restaurant, but anyway, we were there, and and there, you know there were tons of people. Cynthia was there, and Manolo was there, and uh, uh, you know the, what I used to call the cigar mafia. We're all sitting on a big table. There were probably twelve of us, right? And Carlito flew in. He got in and came straight to the the hotel. And you know he walked in and sat down, and he said he was a couple places away from me. And in his Guayabera, I looked and he had a couple of uh, um, little petite lanceros. And it, we're, you know, we're all, we, this is the end of a great week. We've just had a great meal. We're all smoking and everybody's happy and we're trading cigars, hanky. You know, in those days, everybody was really generous with their time and their, you know, there, there was a lot of camaraderie. Carlito sits down maybe three chairs away from me. And he just sort of nah, 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 nah. He takes the cigar out of his Guayabara and he lights it and he starts smoking. And it took about three minutes. You know, again, there's 12, 13 people were all smoking away. And the smoke from what he lit up sort of wafts under my nose. And I'm like, squirrel, you know, what, like, <laughs> what the hell is that? I went, oh, my God. I said, Carlito. What are you smoking? And I reached over to try and get the other cigar out of his Guayabara pocket. And he smacks my hand away and he goes, no, 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 don't say anything. And he's like, uh -uh, no, no, no. He, and he didn't want anybody to know. And I looked at him and I went and, and I and I I sort of stage whispered it, you know, because I kind of want. And I said, is this it? And he's like, no, no, don't, 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 you know, and I'm like, is this Project X from Planet Nine? And every head in the table turns and looks straight at Carlito, you know. And he's like, ah, oh, shit, you know, you, he was, he was like, yeah, you know, the cat's out of the bag. And, and then he gave me the cigar and I, and I dude, I, I was, that was the original size of the first batch of tobacco that he was working into finished blends that would become Opus X. Dude, I'm not exaggerating when I tell you this. That was a religious experience. Yeah, the flavor, the flavor that that cigar had was unlike anything that you could buy anywhere in the world at the time. In other words, it didn't taste like a Dominican cigar. It certainly didn't taste like a Nicaraguan cigar or a Honduras cigar for that matter. And it had, you know, this is a horrible cliche for somebody in the modern cigar business to say, but it had very Cuban-esque properties. And at that time, you know, as it began to, you know, as as the evidence of the project started to circulate and people, they said, Oh no, this tobacco wasn't grown in the Dominican Republic. You snuck in Cuban tobacco and put it in this cigar. He was, Carlito was wounded in the beginning that people didn't believe that he had done this. That set off something. So I went back and I said, guys, there's something happening in the Dominican Republic. Carlito has raised some tobacco. That's phenomenal. And we got to learn, but, you know, he didn't want to tell anybody. But first of all, number one, because he's his father's son. He's inherently cautious and conservative. And he's like, you can't tell anybody about this. And I'm like, eh, you know, OK, but going back and forth. So within five weeks, I was back in the Dominican Republic and he drove me down 
to Mocha and we went to the farm and it started a love affair. Uh, it was it was unbelievable. It was such a great time. So I would continue to go. And again, that like I said, that's where uh, Don Carlos said, uh, we should come more often, you know. It's easier to get a tooth from the mouth of my German shepherd when you're not here. You know, we're talking about Carlito handing him uh, samples of the of the cigars that he was making. <laughs> but we so it was probably the third uh, or fourth visit around that when it, it began. It was taking shape and and Carlito had really started to believe that he had. So I kept telling him, I said, dude, this is in, insane, revolutionary. And he goes, you know. I've been trying to figure out what I'm going to call this. And, you know, I want to use your, I want to use the, the Proyecto Eki because that's how everybody on the island was calling it from then on. Once I said that it became Proyecto Eki, you know, Spanish for Project X. And he goes, I want to include that. And he goes, what, what do you think I should name it? And I said, well, you know, listen, guys get paid a lot of money to come up with brand names and stuff. I don't know. You know, it's gotta be personal. You have to think about this. But I said, I think the first thing that you should do is to uh, ask yourself, what qualities you think uh, the cigar has, you know, as you're smoking it, as you're handling the tobacco, as you're, as you're making it. And he's really, you know, what do you, and I said, well, you know, uh, are the flavors opulent? Are they, uh, are they mineral, you know, and I went through all these things. So he goes, hmm, okay, right. And, and, and again, this is, he was driving me from Santiago to the uh, airport in Puerto Plata, which was a very generous thing to do with this time. We had a great ride. It was fantastic over the mountain. And so he drops me off. I get on the plane and fly home. It's the middle of the night. I'm back in New York City and my phone rings and it's Carlito. And he's like, I got it. I got it. I got it. I said, Carlito, what are you talking about? It's three o'clock in the morning. What are you, you know, and he goes, <laughs> he, he goes, I got it. I got it. He says, remember, remember when I asked you about the, the name for the cigar? And I went, yeah. And he goes, well, you know, you use the word opulent. And I was embarrassed to tell you that I didn't know what that meant. So when I got home, I looked it up. And while I was searching for the word opulent, I came across opus. You know what that means? And I'm like, yeah, opus, you know, your magnum opus. It's your crowning achievement and everything else. And that's a, a very apt. And he goes, yeah, that's it. We're going to call it opus X, opus X. Get it? Opus X, opus X, opus X. He was going through. He was so excited. He was like a kid on Christmas morning, just opened a bicycle <laughs> under the Christmas tree. It was phenomenal. And that's where it came from. Wow. What an incredible story. I love it. I love the story. And oh, yeah. I will never, ever, ever forget the smell of that tobacco coming yeah. down the table and under my nose. And I'm like, what the hell is that? I had never. It, it was it was magic. Oh, so I have to I have to go here because we we reached out to some people who know you pretty well looking for you know, questions to send your way uh -oh. while we had you on the show tonight and you know I, i'm sure do you, have to warn, do you have to warn people with small ch children maybe to, maybe, to maybe. Tune out. hopefully there's no kids watching but right we, um one of the things and i i i know this story has been out there before but um this i actually got this from two separate people who know you very well uh who said you have to ask george about this and in a nutshell, and I'll just give you, because you're going to know it as soon as I say it. Um, tell us about the 10 blind cigar story. Oh, God. Were there actual, how many cigars were there? And, and give us the rundown on that story, because I heard this from, I heard this from, and I'll, I'll, I'll call them out by name because they would love to, 
to know that you know they 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 got one uh, in on this. Jeremiah Mirafel and Jose Blanco. They both they both told me when I called them. They said this is the this is what you have to ask George about. <laughs> and, well, it, and the interesting thing is that both of them heard this story originally, not from me. I didn't tell them. I wasn't. You know, it's like <laughs> when they heard this, it was after the fact. But they heard it from from Gordon Mott, who was yeah. in the room when this happened. Gordon. Gordon called me up. I'm in my office down the hall from Marvin's. And they said, can you come to the conference room? we got a problem. I'm like, okay, sure. I walk down the hall and I go in and they're in the, in this, in con Marvin's conference room was a, a work of art. It was a great place, but they had this, had this huge table and on the table, they had 11 cigars laid out. And they said, we sent cigars to the photographer for the tasting, um, for him to photograph. And at the time we didn't know, this is very, very early days. Uh, and, uh, uh, we were, we were initially photographing the cigars naked. You know, there was no, there were no bands or anything like that to, to begin with. And they said, we sent the photographer, um, the cigars to take the pictures and he sent them back to us, but he didn't keep any of the ID, the bags or tags or anything like that. So we don't know what's what. And I went, I looked at him. I said, what are, you are you kidding? What? And he goes, yeah, no, no, we, we don't know what these cigars are. And I went, please. I said, that's a punch Rothschild from Honduras. That's a Hoyo Epicure from Cuba. That's a Monte Cristo number two. This is a Partagas number nine from the Dominican Republic. Um, uh, I want to say that there might have been a Macanudo Earl of Lonsdale. There was, uh, God, I, you know, to be honest, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not doing a very good job. I can't remember uh, all 11 cigars. But anyway. So this was, and this was all by sight. You didn't pick yeah. these up and smell them. This was all no, by I sight. Just, I, I pointed at them. They were laid out on the table and I would roll them over and I'd say, that's what this is. That's what this is. That's what this is going all the way through. And uh, Marvin and Gordon um, look at each other and go, that's it. And they turn back to me and they go, you're off the, the tasting panel. I went, what? <laughs> I am the fucking tasting panel. What are you talking about? You know, they, you're off the tasting panel. And I go, well, what are you talking about? And I said, we know what these are. I said, you can't participate in a blind test because there's no such thing as fooling you. You don't need anything. You look at them and tell us what they are. Yeah. So you can't be in the blind test. <laughs> so anyway, and I'm like, ah, it's bullshit, you know. So I, that's how that's how I got stuck being the tasting coordinator in the beginning. I had to be the one that assembled all the cigars and tagged them, you know, put the letter on them and the number and everything and put them in everybody's humidor and then uh, uh, accumulate the answers. Gordon would tell the story. He told the story to people like it was so great. He go and he got ten out of eleven, and I'd be like, "Bullshit! I got eleven out of eleven. What the fuck are you talking about?" He goes, "It wasn't a punch Rothschild. It was a Hoya de Monterey Rothschild from Honduras." And I went, "Doesn't matter. It's the same fucking cigar. The guys that make it make the cigar. They don't know what they're going to call it. They just sort them out and they put them in these go in a gray box and they get called Hoya de Monterey." And they put them in, in this batch and put them in a blue box, and it's a punch Rothschild. And I said, and if you don't believe me, call the guy that owns the company. Danny Blumenthal will tell you there's no difference between a punch and a Hoyo Rothschild. So I got 11 right. And they're like, nah, nah, you didn't get that. you know. And I was like, oh, you fucking. He told that story to the Cubans. He told that story to the Cubans, and uh, uh, and they're like, uh, you know, nobody can do that. And I said, yeah, I can do it better with Cubans. I can tell you what factory they come from. And they're like, that's impossible. And I said, try me. That turned into a big hoorah. You know, the head of 
the head of uh, Cuba Tobacco is like, okay, you come to my office and uh, we'll see if that's right. And I'm like, dude, all your factories have a fingerprint. I can tell what comes from Partagas versus what comes from La Corona, what comes from HUP and what comes from, a I said, I can't name all the colonial factories, but the non-Havana factories all have the same look and approach. So I can, I can definitely ID that. Wow. And by that time, by that time, Gordon and Marvin had learned to believe in me. And they said, yeah, we back George. We'll, we'll bet whatever, whatever you want to bet for this, that, that he can do that. <laughs> so, George, um, I'm going to be on to cigar number two here. Um, when you're looking at going back to back from cigars, what what is something? Because a lot of people think that you want to go light to heavy throughout, you know, the evening, if you're going to be smoking multiple cigars, what's your typical approach to a multiple cigar evening? I don't necessarily think that that's a hundred percent right. Uh, but it depends on what you're going to pick. In other words, I, I don't, there's, it, it, everything doesn't have to stack. It doesn't have, there's a couple things that, that matter time of day, mm -hmm. the size cigar, that, that you're going to pick, and to a degree, what you're going to drink with it. Because what you're going to drink is going to, you know, maybe soften or enhance some of the, uh, some of the, the, the things that uh, uh, you would experience in it. But I can tell you this. I think some of the greatest cigar experiences I ever had were, uh, you know, at... 1230 or one o'clock in the morning uh, after smoking five or six cigars in a day, sometimes even in a, in a tasting uh, environment, you know, where I'm going through factories and stuff like that, or, or, or a day when we're working on a blend and we're, we're trying all these different varieties. And I will pick up a smaller ring gauge, shorter cigar with a beautiful blonde wrapper that has, a, a, let's say, a creamy profile. And it's the greatest nightcap cigar you can possibly imagine. So the idea that you have to go from mild to strong and never take a step back is a canard. And and it's it, now that does not mean that you sit there and smoke the you know the heaviest cigar that you you know you don't take a La Flor Dominicana double Harrow uh, you know or a digger. Uh, and then you, and then you light up a Davidoff Ambassadrice, uh, you know, and think that the, <laughs> it's going to register. It's not quite, you know, you, yeah. you have, there has to be a little bit of time and you have to, you know, maybe have a little green tea in between. Well, I'd like I'd like you to pick my next cigar. Um, I just had a Opus X Lost City. Wait, take the bands off so I can. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um I don't know if you've had any of uh, of these cigars, but I've got a the new Adventura, yeah, uh, Rojas, uh, the Room One Hundred One, uh, Thirteen, and the um, Stolen Throne, Crook of the Crook Crown. of the Crown. Yeah, and I got to tell you, just because I, I I think Lee's a cool guy anyway, I think you should smoke the Stolen Throne, Crook of the Crown. Yes, because yes. because I will tell you this. I, I think that cigar has flavor. It has it has all these properties that, that are that are everything that you're looking for in a great cigar experience without crushing your palate, without yep. making you think that the Russian army just walked through your mouth in their sock. <laughs> right? Yes. You know, it, it's just not, you know, it, it, there's something about that. There's, let's put it this way. I think there's an ethereal quality to that cigar. That, that it has, I get a very wistful feeling when I get to the end of smoking one of those because that's it, right? I and you, 
Yeah, I have to agree with that. It's that was our numbers. That was our number two cigar of the year last year. Yep. On our on our on our end of the year list. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I can say is that um, uh, Lee did himself dirty there because how the hell do you follow that cigar up? Oh, I know. Seriously, yeah. I mean that cigar. That cigar is a masterpiece for a guy that isn't necessarily. You know, he's not one of these guys that was born in the tobacco patch and uh, uh, you know has everything bred. So that that's awesome. I, I just I take my hat off. Yeah, we do too, and uh, we love Lee. He's uh, um, he's a fantastic guy, and he has even ended up on my arm of infamy. I'm. Uh, oh yeah. I'm, oh, you got a cat. Well, so I, you know, I started with my my first love. He's got Opus. Of course, Opus. Uh, yes. Thank and you, Pete. Aventura. Oh, and then, oh uh, yeah, which is that, that's a great logo, by the way. Holy Stole shit. a throne. What a badass tat. By the way, that must have hurt like a bitch. Sorry, gosh, that must have been an unpleasant experience when you had that. <laughs> so I asked Lee at the trade show, um, you know, I let him know that I'm, I'm tatting up and it would be an honor to put his logo on my arm. And he's like, well, if you're going to do it, you got to put it where I put it. And uh, his was on the inside of the arm. And uh, I was texting him through the whole process. Like, you're such an asshole. Go, you son it. of a bitch. I can't believe you did that to me. Right. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, and I have to. Uh, I'm kind of losing my mind right now because I just, for my second cigar of the night, I I dug deep and I grabbed the last one from my collection of the 2015 uh, Tatuaje Saints and Sinners. And yeah, there's another cigar that makes you cry every time you burn one of the last cigars from a Saints and Sinners pack. You're going, yeah. I'll never get a chance to do that again. Yep. Thanks yeah. a lot, Pete. Yep. Fucked me up again. <laughs> <laughs> but just the, I mean, this is this is like a true, you know, five by forty-two, and uh, just right right off the bat, it was just really real. There's so much sweetness still left in this cigar. Let me it's, ask you a question: What kind of were you keeping that in its? Because um, it, 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 if it's a, a Saints and Sinners, it came in a plastic pack. So, what kind of humidor did you have that in? Uh, I have. I have uh, a dual section humidor, so I have uh, my main section up top that we keep review cigars in and my everyday smokes, and then the lower section is uh, for cigars that I would like to keep for a little bit longer than average, mm -hmm. uh, although I really don't, I, I tend to smoke through shit, I, I don't really age stuff very well because I just smoke it, but the upper Seven section- Seven years is a pretty long time. Yeah, the upper section I for everyday smokes, I keep that at 69% humidity and it's pretty much always 68 degrees down where I have my humidor. And the lower section, I keep that at 62% humidity. Uh Those for Vita packs. Yeah. Yeah, so I keep it I keep it at a lower humidity for stuff that I'm going to try to hang on to for a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. And it, this cigar is there's so much sweetness right off the bat. It's just blowing my mind. I love it. Do you ever make little notes like when you have stuff like that, you leave an index card in there about when you got them and the first time you smoked them and have little thoughts. So when you come back to it four or five years later, you know, and because sometimes if you do that, one of the great things about that is if you read it, you sit there and you go, oh, my God, I only have two of these left. If I smoke one now, 
then I'm only going to have one left. And, and, and that's, you know, it's like no good. You can, you can yeah. slow yourself down from reaching down into your treasure chest and go, Oh, I'm going to burn this. I love these, yeah. you know, and then go, Oh, but wait a minute. If I do that, I'm, I'm near the end of my rope. So I used to keep all these little notebooks and, and I I'm kicking myself because like our friend, John McTavish from developing pallets, he keeps, you know, the, the, the notebooks and I used to have those same notebooks that I taped the bands into. I'd keep yep. notes and then I'd smoke them later and take more notes. And I, years ago I had probably four or five of those notebooks and I like an idiot, I threw them away. Oh no. You must and, be married. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, but now uh, basically since then I, I just keep everything on my phone. Yeah. So, but it's not, yeah. it's, I do miss the notebooks. Well, and I've had yeah because the notebooks allow you to to hold the the you know the band itself. Yeah. Uh, you know, the touch has a lot to do with um, you know when you're experiencing something like that. You you're like, oh my god, this is cool. Yeah. Well, and I want to get some of those just plain bands so that when I'm in my humidor and I'm looking at this, like. I have forgotten now who gave these to me and yeah. what they are. They could be trade show cigars. They could be a gift from somebody. I, it's so frustrating because I'm the same way. I don't keep good enough track. People hand me a cigar. It doesn't have a band on it. They yep. say, hey, smoke this and try it. And then I bring it home and I'm in a rush and I throw shit in my humidor. Yeah. And I'm like, six months later, I pull it out of there. I'm like, what the fuck is this cigar? So George, and the worst thing is, then you look at it and you go, oh, okay, wait a minute. This, I don't know whether this is a mailman cigar or uh, or this is a treasure that I that I have to find the right occasion for. Right. So, George, <laughs> what am I working with here? What do we What do we got? Well, I, I like that. I love the Figurato. I love the uh, I love the look of that. And it, it's hard to tell through the cellophane, but I would say that Figurato might be San Andres wrapper. I the, yeah, we got them at the trade show from somebody, and I don't fucking remember who gave us Gosh, the garment. I know it's so it's so bad. Yeah, and we, the other one's a Habano wrapper for sure. Uh, yeah. uh, probably probably an Ecuador Habano. And uh, but 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 let me. It's it's box pressed. Is that why it, it looks the way it does? Did you? Uh, I I think you got that from Lee. I think that's yep. another stolen throne. Yep. I think that's the new. Yep. Look um, at that. Uh, By the way, what an imperial-looking cigar, too. Look at that; that's a badass smoke. Yeah, it is. That um, I think that I think that might be an unbanded pre-release from Lee of that Habano. Uh, I and I, I'm sorry, I don't remember the name um, of the cigar right now. Yeah, I think I that think might right. be what this is. I think you're right. But so that means, yeah. um, save it and uh, and smoke it. Smoke it someplace where you can actually go ahead and make some notes. And then and, and snap a picture of it too. I always do that. You know, take a take a photograph on my phone and make a couple of uh, quick notes so that I can go back and reference that. And then I can say, Hey, by the way, did you give me this cigar? Right, and look at it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I you, should we? Is it? Well, I want I want to know wanna, that one. This one. That right? one. Oh, this one. Okay. That one. So this question I actually got from our dear friend Jose Blanco. Uh oh. What? Why do <laughs> the they professor. call you? Why do they call you the Pope? <laughs> in in the in the nineties boom, I used to lead again what I called the cigar mafia. You know, Rocky and Lido and uh, Wayne and Cynthia and Carlito and and uh, all these different people. And 
we, you know, in those days, we were probably doing the big smoke in uh, six, seven or eight cities, depending upon the year. So uh, the day of the big smoke, we'd get together and, uh, you know, leave the hotel in a, in a rented, uh, you know, big ass, uh, you know, like one of those Tahoes with Jimmy Pendergast driving. And we would bomb around uh, whatever city we were in. And I would take them to all the tobacconists, you know, and uh, and bring them in and invite them. You know, we would have a we would have a great, you know, it was just like, oh, my God, you know, uh, our cigar store just got occupied by the cigar army. And uh, they the uh, there was a guy who was the photographer that I found to take the pictures for what became the Puente Puente Opus X campaign and all their advertising too, for that matter, named Enrico Barone and his buddy, uh, Carl. And they, you know, they had walked in. I met him in my Davidoff days, but um, I had Enrico working for a lot of people, but the Fuentes adopted him. And, uh, and, and he used to, uh, he used to say, oh, what are you doing today? Oh, we're following the Pope. <laughs> and, and that's it, you know? And it would be, and by the way, that's where the Grand Havana Room came from. We were in Chicago. We were in Chicago. We went to this place called Burgoff's. I'm not yeah. even sure if Burgoff's is there anymore. Legendary place, no, right? It, uh, yeah, but, but, but I think Burgoff's went out of business. Yeah. But Burgoff's was a great joint. We were all there. And in those days, there was a there was sort of a Hollywood group of guys that were there. Joey Pantoliano, you know, Joey Pants, the actor. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And his friend Brian Haley. And uh, sometimes Montaigne was there. And... Uh, all these different guys. And they you know, they were all my buddies. And so we were, we were going around and doing the stuff. And at the end of the day, uh, we were, we were meeting up at Berghoff's for a late lunch before everybody went back to the hotel and got ready for the big smoke that night. And Joey had this guy with him who was in from LA. I think, I think Joey and, uh, and Brian, they might've been making baby's day out at the time. Anyway, that's why they were in Chicago. Anyway, Joey, we're, we're at lunch and everybody's talking and we're shooting the shit, you know, and and uh, Joey goes, uh, listen, I'm the best connected cigar guy in Hollywood. I got to do something to capitalize on this. And and, uh, you know, I don't know quite. And I said, it's easy, Joey, you're going to start a cigar bar. We're going to call it the Pants Club. And I and I sketched out this thing with a matchbook that had, you know, all this stuff. And I, and I, and I described a cigar bar, you know, but, but with the Joey Pants application, all these different aspects. And this guy that had been that Joey had brought along, who was sitting in the back. So in other words, we were all at the table, and he was one chair removed from the table, sort of sitting between Joey and uh, might have been Wayne Suarez. But anyway, uh, he leans forward and he taps uh, he taps Joey on the back, and he goes, "I think I can get my dad to pay for that." And Pants goes, "What?" And he turns around, and looks at him, and goes, "What do you mean?" So that started this little whisper conversation. They're going through, and uh, uh, at the end of that couple of days. They said, uh, uh, we're, we're going we're gonna to try and make this work. We're actually going to do this. A couple weeks later, I get a phone call. Joey and Stan Schuster, that was his name. He said, we found a place. We want you to come out and look at it. So I'm <laughs> like, what? You know? So I flew out. I, I, they're my friends. I like them a lot. You know? I flew out to L.A. I was on the weekend. And uh, I'm, going, I'm doing this walkthrough of this space on Cannon Drive, Cannon and Rodeo. And they're showing me the restaurant. Uh, the, the, the empty space that would become Grand Havana Room. And I said, yeah, you know, you got to paint this thing so it looks like a cigar and you put this over. I laid the whole thing out for them. I walked through the whole thing and, and named it all. And uh, they ended up, you know, and, and uh, uh, Arnold at that time, Dolph was uh, was was more or less Arnold's stunt double. He was sort of a, 
you know, like his man Friday. He goes, yeah, we have a, we have an Austrian guy. He's going to come and make schnitzel and all this stuff. You know, the, the original <laughs> menu, the original menu for cigar for, for the Grand Havana Room was hilarious. It was crazy. But anyway, uh, that's what the, that's how the Grand Havana Room got started. Wow. Wow. And that's where that's where Pete got his start. Right. Absolutely. Although yeah. Pete and I knew each other already. I, I suggested to them that they hire Pete to run the uh, the cigar department. I mean, he had other people yeah. in his corner, too. But I had known Pete from uh, his time working as a teenager, as a part-timer, literally sweeping up the floors and mixing pipe tobacco for a, a guy who had a, a shop in the valley in Sherman Oaks. And, right. and Pete was, uh, you know, I, he was always, he, Pete was, Pete's one of the, the, the great students of the industry and, and, and loves history. And so we would go every time I'd go there, he'd be like, what is this cigar? You know, and he would, he was always trying to stump me with blindfold cigars. And <laughs> I love it. So is it, Oh, is it time? I think it is. Are you sure? I'm sure. All right. It is now time for this week's numero de los muertos. And as always, Numero de los Muertos is brought to us by our friends at Smoke Inn. Numero de los Muertos, episode 173. Garrett, what do you have for us this week? This is a weird one. I love it. Those are the best ones. It's going to be fun. All right. Sex toys with animals comes up immediately. Where'd it go, Quentin? He doesn't even hear me. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's, yep. That's going to be basically (laughs) the category he's going with. Uh, So here's the number. 12 people a year have died from this in the last 10 years. However, uh, in the 80s, it had spiked to 40 people a year died in this place. And it's arbitrary, so it's not a specific geographical location, but there are many of these places across the country. And this is U.S. This is a U.S. Uh, number only. So 12 people a year. It spiked in the 80s up to the 40s. But it is now down to 12. Okay. As always, um, George, you and I are going to play 20 questions with Garrett here and our viewers as well. I got to tell you the one thing. First of all, I love that, that caricature of Abe in the, uh, the smoke-in uh, yes. uh, that plays during that time. But also, I have to tell you, there's a Pavlovian de- de- uh, response that I'm developing now. I think when I die, I'm going to hear that that music in my head. You know, it's going to be, dun, 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 dun. you know, that that little riff is going to be like, oh, my God, is everything's going to black. And, uh, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm going whatever direction. Um, so, but let me let me clarify something. So what you're saying is that now, in the last decade, uh, 12 people a year die as a result of being in this place but in the 80s, it was as high as the 40s for Correct. being in this type of place. Not one specific location, but a Correct. type of place. Yes. 
All right, and these deaths all have taken place in the United States. That is correct. All right, it is not space. It is not aerobics. <laughs> it is not a swing club. It's yeah. It's not uh, falling off a cliff. It is not waterfalls. Yeah. Are these, um, these deaths so typically happen indoors or outdoors? Outdoors. Outdoors. Okay, outdoors. And it spiked in the eighties to go up to as many as forty. Hmm. Yeah. Um, now it can happen <laughs> indoors. These these do take place outdoors um, and indoors, but majority of them. Um, is it happen. is it some kind of competition or race? No, sir. Uh, so it's it, definitely not porn sets. And and does it? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> That's a competition too. But uh, right. does it? Uh, <laughs> Does it does it involve um, vehicles or equipment? No, oh, sir. Very good question. So it's not bungee jumping. Correct. Are these workplace accidents? They are not. Is it a recreational activity? Uh, this is not. It would be it's really not. Sad. Wait a minute. It's it's not a recreational activity. No. And, but wait a minute. Did, did you did you ask it? It's not work related either. That's correct. So it's not work related and it's not recreational. Right. Does that mean uh, people falling out of bunk beds? I mean, um, it's not that. These deaths take place in the home? Uh, no. No, he, he said it, it can occur indoors, but more often it incurs outdoors. Correct. Animals are not involved. On land or water? Land. Uh, not oxygen tank exploding. Uh, window washing. No. We, we did window we did washing. That. Yeah. Yeah, not, not tripping on a sidewalk. Um, spiked in the '80s. Yeah, what's spiked in the '80s? I'm trying to think. Breaking, uh, 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 tripping because they're walking on platform shoes. Mm. <laughs> That's a good. I one. love it. Uh, no, oh, I wouldn't. I, I is mean, this one dark? It's not super dark. Because I is it? Does it have is 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 it suicide related? No, it is not. Okay. I'm glad to know it's not that dark. Um, let me ask you this. Does it involve a passion? Are these people engaging in this activity willingly? Yes. Great question. It is. That no, is really I have to question. add that to my fucking least. Well, I, I'll, list say, of weekly I'll say questions. this. They're, they're willing participants, but they wish they weren't there. Oh, wait a minute. Let's parse that. They're willing participants at the at the start of the of the process but they but they wish that they weren't where this is occurring so they're in uh boxing matches in prisons <laughs> i love it no <laughs> no it's not any kind of jumping is it a sport it is not a sport mm, interesting it's not work related it doesn't it doesn't it's it, it doesn't necessarily happen at home it's not a recreational activity yeah um and it spiked in the 80s and vehicles are not involved correct what the you, hell vehicles and, and and not vehicles are vikings fans involved uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. no it's buffalo bills fan suicide <laughs> <laughs> it could be in the 80s there yeah, been exactly and, uh, and willingly, yes, they went, yeah, but the, but yeah. they hated the outcome, so of course they killed themselves. Damn you, Jim Kelly! 
Oh uh, shit. Not, um not game shows, not tree cutting. But the, wait a minute. I think the clue in all of this is you're saying that they wish they weren't there at the time that it happened. Is this an entertainment venue? No. So it's not concerts or no. anything like that. But um all right, here's another clue. Cat Stevens wrote a soundtrack to a movie about these events. Cat Stevens wrote a soundtrack? Mm-hmm. I don't think movie. Keeper the Tillerman qualifies as a... Uh, um, mm-hmm. Wow. Cat Stevens wrote a, a, theme, a, a song for uh, uh, oh, the soundtrack entire, of a movie. An entire soundtrack to a movie. So if you can think of the movie that he wrote a soundtrack to, that will give you a good clue as to the events that we're talking about. Big wave surfing? No, because no. it's not a sport, and you said it happens on land. Correct. Um, wow, Cat Stevens. So it's forced conversion to uh, Islam. <laughs> no, I, I want to use Google so bad right now, but I won't. This is, uh, this is pre- this is actual Cat Stevens. This is when he was Cat Stevens, not Yusef. Islam, right. Okay. Uh, Steven, uh, Steve uh, Googled the movie. So if anyone remembers the movie Harold and Maude. Well, Harold and Maude was about a May-December romance. Um, I, I don't remember the movie Harold and Maude. Um, tripping? LSD? Mm-hmm. No, uh, yeah, bum, a, a bad acid trip, uh uh-uh. uh, because that doesn't kill people. What's was it a uh, Harold and Maud? Well, wait a minute, Harold and Maud in, in Harold and Maud, um, the uh, uh, is it is it uh, does he help her commit uh, assisted suicide? He does, but what how they met was and at Tom, a funeral, at a funeral, they were going to funerals, yep. So the correct answer is <clears throat> dying at funerals. From from any cause? Any cause whatsoever. Dying at funerals. Does that did that happen a lot in the 80s? So anyone want to Why did a, it spike in the 80s? Does anyone want to take a stab at why it spiked AIDS. in the 80s? Huh. Because people were being buried in waterbeds. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. No, uh, it wasn't AIDS. Nope. No, could, definitely not. Um, Dying at funerals. Um, 80s funerals. So funerals in the 80s um, between two different groups were not respected like they are now, I guess. Two different groups. Yeah. What group? What was that, George? Meaning religion? Not religion. Ethnic groups? Nope. So I'm just going to come out and say it for uh, yeah. Sagan Show and Dead Air. Um, uh, gangs. Yes. Tom again. Oh, shit. Hey, let me ask you a question. Where the hell does Tom Darling live? Is he is he like a member of the of the Crips or something? Does he live in L.A. and uh, and and he he's like oh yeah you know 
we'd set a big wreath and hide behind it and then blow up the guys that, you know, I mean, holy shit. Yeah, Tom, yeah. Tom Darling doesn't really strike me as a gang name. Cape Cod. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's a lot of gang activity on Cape Cod. <laughs> West Side, Cape Cod. West Side. Holy shit. That is, that, by the way, what genius insight. That is incredible. Holy now, cow. Now, here's the thing. Somebody's probably going to earn their master's thesis explaining why this happened in the 80s and it doesn't happen that much now. Yeah. Like, yeah what is the much. dynamic that prevailed other than Oh, I'd like to get to be older than 18. <laughs> right? And so you know what? I'm I'm going to wear my uh, I'm going to wear my underoos pajamas to the gang funeral instead of the, my colors, you know? Uh, I'm going to wear I'm going to wear fucking uh, you know, Flintstones uh, uh onesies and uh, and and hope that nobody fuck out and I'll I'll cover up all my uh, you know, I'll wear fucking L'Oreal makeup on my uh, ear tattoos. <laughs> Fucking A, man. That oh, is amazing. Tom man. Darling, man, you are a genius. Yes, that was good. <laughs> Holy shit, that was good. Wow. That, oh, th oh. You know what, man? That's the most sophisticated numeros de, lo, de los muertos yet. That's absolutely mind-blowing. But I'm telling you, we got to find out. We got to find Somebody has to have dug deep and figured out why the hell it happened in the 80s and now it's down. Right. That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, all I, you know, one of the articles that I read was uh, gangs now respect um, that place where they didn't in, in the mid eighties into the nineties, but it really peaked in uh, again, the because they want to live past 17 or 18. Yeah. That's the deal. Like, you know, I'd like to get to be old enough to vote. Yeah. That'd be good. That'd and buy be good. beer legally. <laughs> all right. So, that was a great one, and that was this week's Numero de los Muertos. See, there's that music. I'm telling you, man, I'm going to hear that fucking sound when I die. <laughs> I Every time something bad happens, I hear that sound. Exactly. <laughs> All right, let's jump into the lightning round, and the lightning round brought to us by our friends at J.C. Newman Cigar Company, America's oldest family-owned premium cigar maker, creators of the popular Brickhouse, Perla Del Mar, Diamond Crown, and The American. J.C. Newman Cigar Company out operates out of their 112-year-old El Rolo Cigar Factory in historic Cigar City, Tampa, Florida. For more information on their cigars or their visitor experience, please visit jcnewman.com. All right. And when you go there for that visit, did you guys see Drew Newman's Instagram post? The 116-year-old Cuesta Ray cigars they found? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. What, that's so awesome. Oh. That's worth that's worth the trip to Tampa alone. Absolutely. Yes, no doubt. All right, so George. And by the way, let's I'll I'll put this to rest right away. I did not smoke those when they were released. <laughs> 116 years ago, I had not developed the cigar habit that I have today. So, Jose Blanco, Jose Blanco, I was not smoking those cigars. Uh, you know, I, I, I barely, I barely had two nickels to rub together, and I couldn't spare one of them for a cigar. But Jose did smoke them when they were yeah, first released. <laughs> so you weren't, you weren't hanging out with, uh, you know, uh, President Taft and uh, yeah. and the boys. Nope. You know. Fritz Mondale and uh, Fritz Mondale and Hubert Humphrey and those guys, yes, you know, but, yes. but that's, uh, that's it. That's it. Yeah. 
All right. So, George, if you could hear the thoughts of one living person for 10 minutes, who would it be and why? Wow. That's a good question. If I could hear the thoughts, but, and it could only be for 10 minutes, right? I wouldn't have to listen to them for more after that, right? Yep. 10 minutes, one living person. Right now. Yeah. I would definitely, I would like to know what's going on in that scrambled pea brain of Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah. Do you think I would like to know, I would uh, like to know if he really believes that he won the election. Sorry. <laughs> we didn't, I, I did not mean to make this political. We'll, we'll, we'll hey, skip right good. over that. It's all good. It's all good. Yeah. That's, there's a, there's a lot, you know, that you want to, I mean, you want to come in there and f just figure out what the hell's going on. Mm -hmm. You do. You want to know. Yep. All right, George, if you were about to get into a fight, mm -hmm. what would your soundtrack music be? Uh, wow, that's a, you know, holy shit. Um, you know what? I would probably want to disarm my opponents, so I would play uh, Marvin Gaye's Let's Get It On. Fuck yes! Ah. Yes. I love when people take offbeat answers yep. that aren't like me too. Like rocking like fight songs that yep. they're no, more, no, no. I'd be they'd be like, what? What the fuck? Yes. Huh? Yes. Yes, that's it. What let's get it on. All right, it. George. The zombies are coming. You get to choose three industry people to be on your apocalypse fighting team. Who do you select and why? Well, uh, for you got to have Mickey Peg, because uh, uh, Mickey Peg's a, a a human wall, and and also he, Mickey's a guy that would start telling jokes and trying to divert people, uh, you know, and 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 doing stuff. So so he has got to be in there. Mickey's like a, you know he's an ex football player and uh, uh, and 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 got a huge heart. So uh, yeah. he, he would he would he'd be in there right away. Um, I would think. Um, Lito Gomez, because Lito Gomez is one of the smartest, uh, most um, strategic thinkers that I know uh, in the anywhere in 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 any business. Uh, and Lito would be figuring out right away. Uh, and then the third person is obvious. Also, uh, I I would want uh, a Christian Iroa because we would probably be able to jump Ooh. in his plane and fly away. There you go. That's true. Yes. That is right? a very so, good answer. So that's my team. Lito would be figuring out how to neutralize the threat. Uh, Mickey would be, uh, you know, like jollying them uh, uh, and leading them in the wrong direction. And Christian would be the escape plan. Love it. Love it. Yep. All right. So let's. By the way, jump. I think that's actually a pretty good team for almost anything that you want to do. Yeah, I agree. Yes, most definitely. Um, all right, let's jump into this week's Notable Smokables. And as always, Notable Smokables on How About That Cigar Live, brought to us by our friends at Luciano's Cigars. Notable cigars, notable passion, notable purpose. Uh, so, George, each week we each name a cigar that we smoked recently that was notable to us. It could be a cigar that's been on the market for decades that you just smoked for the first time in a long time, or a cigar that's newer to the market that you smoke for the first time ever. So is there something you can think of that you smoked recently that really stood out to you? 
yeah, not to mention the, but a you know a small uh, a small um, podcast tasting podcast uh, uh, Ono Live with my friend Jay Caragay, uh, great coffee roaster who's also a cool cigar guy. We celebrated his hundredth episode with a with a party, actually in the roastery, and I sm- I brought um, for a bunch of us to smoke three years. 2020, 2021, and 2022 Las Calaveras. Oh. But I had also brought 2019 Las Calaveras for me and Jay and one other friend who was there to light. And God, mm-hmm. that cigar was... Actually, I got to tell you, I, I was... Um, I was genuinely sad when I reached the end of that because I knew that, you know... It was going. We we were we we were on the air for like I don't know six hours maybe, and we had been hanging out smoking for probably four hours before that at least. And so I knew when I finished smoking that cigar that I was eventually going to light up something else. But I was like, damn man, this cigar was great, and it, it it's epic. We're so we actually we decided I think we're going to to get together at a at a later date and do a vertical of um, 2018 through 2022. Oh, nice. Nice. So that was, that was, I mean, literally really uh, when, you know, you're in a day long thing and you're hanging out with all your buddies and we were smoking great cigars. I had a a tremendous intemperance that day. Mm. Uh, uh, And, 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 and I love the uh, 2021 uh, Las Calaveras too, but man, that 19 was, it it was, um, it was memorable in every way that you think a cigar can be. And, and it's one of the, you know how you can tell a great cigar? You're getting down to the end of it, but it's stuck to your fingers. You go, you take your last puff and you put it towards the ashtray and then you go, nah, let me just. Yeah, I can get yeah. one more. I can get one more. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That's it. Uh, Garrett, what was so your How about one? you guys? So um, we took in the docks at our cabin yeah. uh, this last weekend, yesterday, and I after all the work was done and uh, we were beat up a little bit, but everything went okay. Sitting out on our swing that overlooks the lake and just about any cigar will do in that. Yeah. yeah. I had the El Maestro, El, El Maestro from William Ventura. Mm. And first time having that cigar and it was incredible. So wonderful environment. Uh, good friend Mo came up and helped out and we sat on the swing, had a moment, talked life and, uh, with a beautiful cigar, it was amazing. That's what were awesome. you drinking? What were you drinking? I was drinking coffee. Wow. Nice. Um, my notable this week was, um, I almost want to use the term redemption cigar, but it's not really, it's not really that, but so I smoked, uh, the Agonorsa leaf Cerberus in the Toro size. Mm-hmm. And I say redemption because I bought a box of the Lonsdale size when they first released, because that's my, that's, you know, that thin ring shape. Yeah. That thin, thin ring gauge. That's my, you know, that's my wheelhouse. Everybody knows that. And, but I, I finally bought uh, a handful of the Toro size and that cigar smokes so well in the in the 50 ring gauge that that 50 by 
by six, that six by 50. Uh, and I'm, I'm sorry if I'm getting the size wrong, but it's, it's in that Close realm that. of size and, and just some, that blend it, it, there, it was made I, for that size. Everybody knows that I, and I've talked about this on the show. I just had a lot of problems with combustion with those smaller ring gauge of that blend. But then when I got it in that bigger ring gauge, man, it just sings in that, in that size, the blend really hits where I think it needs to hit in that size. So I was, I was really pleased with that cigar a few days ago. So I'm excited to smoke through the rest of those uh, and, and even try the rest of the ring gauges, even into the bigger, the bigger sizes on that one. Yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not so much in that. How's that crook of the crown smoking? Uh-huh. Well, and something about this, this is actually uh, an original release. Um, I forgot that I had a entire bundle and I found it the other day, rearranging, rearranging some stuff in uh, my aging humidor. And I was like, Ooh, completely <laughs> unopened and nice. <laughs> They're stupid. Nice. They're stupid. Good. Yeah. I, I, I just, I'm telling you, man, I, there's, there's something about those. They're, 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 they're blue ribbon winners. Yeah. No. I, and you know what Lee is, has done not growing up in the cigar industry, all of the relationships he has built and uh, growing what he has grown and how he's done it. I mean, my hat's off to, to him. Yeah. Definitely. Nothing but love and respect for that guy. All right, so let's jump into some, or sorry, let me uh, finish that out. That was this week's Notable Smokables, brought to you by Luciano Cigars, improving lives through fine cigars. Please visit LucianoCigars.com to learn more. So now we have coming attractions, and our coming attractions on How About That Cigar Live are brought to you by our friends at A.J. Fernandez, Born and raised in Cuba, A.J. Fernandez now produces unparalleled premium cigars in Esteli, Nicaragua. The A.J. Fernandez portfolio of cigars provides blend, strength, and flavor profiles to match the preferences of any premium cigar consumer. Whether it's New World, Dias de Gloria, San Latano, Enclave, or Bayas Artes, you are sure to be satisfied with a premium cigar from A.J. Fernandez. So... Next week on the 26th of September, we have Chris Weber from Veritas Cigars on the show. And starting out the month of October, on October 3rd, we have Miguel Chaudel from Crown Heads. And then on the 10th of October, we will actually be on the road live at Tobacco Grove in Maple Grove, Minnesota, talking with Jeff Hogan and the rest of the boys there from Crux Cigars. And then uh, later on in October, we have Luciano Morales from Luciano Cigars. So, George, brother, man, we we only touched on a, a tenth of this of the stories you have, but we are so grateful to sit down and learn from you, and would look forward to and relish the chance to sit down and talk to you again. So, thank you so much for being on our show tonight. Yeah, man. hey, it was my honor, man. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, and you guys. You're, I, I love what you're doing. I, I really do. I, I'm, I'm going to want to tune in when Luciano and Miguel are on because I'm big fans. You know, yeah. I, both those guys. So that, that's dynamite. Great, great lineup. And I, I love it. So I hope we didn't bore people. Uh, and, and, I, and I hope they'll have an appetite for, uh, you know, keep tuning in. And, and I'm happy. Uh, anytime you got a blank spot, call me up and we'll chat. Thank you Appreciate so much, that. sir. Much appreciated. Yeah. Thank you, George. Hey, my, 
My pleasure. So for our viewers and listeners, guys, thank you so much again for watching and listening to How About That Cigar Live. If you're on YouTube, please click on the big red subscribe button. If you're on uh, Facebook, rather, make sure to follow the page and like the page so you don't miss anything we have going on. For those of you listening on the audio podcast, make sure to subscribe to it on whichever podcast platform you listen on. We're so grateful that you listen to How About That Cigar Live. If you guys have questions, you can email us right on the website, howaboutthatcigar.com. Follow us on all social media at HBT Cigar. And of course, until we see you guys next time, burn cigars, not bridges. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everybody.